Cortico is a nonprofit that builds audio tools to improve public dialogue. Allison King is an engineer at Cortico, and she joins the show to talk about the process of building audio applications. One of these applications was a system for ingesting radio streams, transcribing the radio, and looking for duplicate information across the different radio stations. In a talk at the Data Council conference, Allison talked through the data engineering architecture for processing these radio streams and the patterns that she found across the radio streams, including clusters of political leanings. Another project from Cortico is called Local Voices Network. The Local Voices Network is built around a piece of hardware called a digital hearth, a specialized device that records discussions among people in a community. These community discussions are made available to journalists, public officials, and political candidates, creating a listening channel that connects these communities and stakeholders. Much of our conversation was focused on the engineering of this digital hearth, the device that sits in the center of community discussions. Allison King, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. You've spent some time doing data engineering over talk radio data. Why would you do that? Yeah, that's a great question. So I work at Cortico, which is a nonprofit, and our original roots were with the MIT Media Lab. And the Media Lab originally had this project called the Electome, where it was looking at mostly Twitter data to see this was around the 2016 election. And then there were some reports that said, so certain social medias are skewed in terms of the population that uses them. But then there were some reports that said talk radio is a really interesting corpus where you have, I guess, more both more conservative voices than you might on Twitter, for instance. And we didn't think there was really anyone else that we knew of who was scraping talk radio and looking through that data. So we thought that would be an interesting way to see America in a way that we don't really get to see just through tweets or other news sources like that. What kinds of applications did you want to build over talk radio data? I guess the the most basic thing was a, or the most useful thing we could think of at the time was just something that you could search for. So you could search through talk radio. And the only thing we really liked about talk radio was the local nature of it. So you have, so we're based in, or our headquarters are in Boston. So let's say, what are people talking about in Boston regarding a certain topic? And we didn't think that was something that you could find that easily on Google, for instance, unless some local news site had written an article about it already. And I guess we wanted to make a tool that would help the process of writing those articles. So the overall mission of Cortico is to elevate underheard voices. So let's say there's like a bunch of people talking about like the public transportation system in Boston. And unless a reporter goes out and like figures out that's something people are talking about and writes an article about it, it's not something that gets elevated. So one thing we were interested in with talk radio is that a lot of people call into talk radio shows and voice their concerns. So we wanted to get like that caller data. And from that, we would know this is like a local person who is affected by things like public transportation in their local setting. And I guess with Twitter and with news sources, everything's been leaning more national. So it's more national news that dominates, especially since a lot of local news outlets aren't doing so well these days. 
Now, if you're trying to analyze radio, is there an API you can use for radio streams? How do you get radio data? So it's mostly looking at, I guess, there. I don't know this part of the pipeline all that well, but it's a lot of sites will have streams online. So we just sort of just ingest that. And then we had a transcription pipeline that would transcribe that, put everything in S3. And then we would do things like find top terms from it and then make that searchable and put like a visualization layer on top of that. Sorry, is this exclusively local radio or is it also national radio? What kinds of radio data were you looking to perform data engineering on top of? Yeah, so I guess it was mostly places that we had partnerships with. So we started in, actually I'm not entirely sure if this is where we started, but one example is Madison, Wisconsin, uh, where we were working very closely with a political science professor there named Kathy Kramer. And so we identified like certain local news radio stations there. But one of the things is that on radio, there's a lot of syndicated content that is broadcast across the nation. So it's not like if you just tune into your local radio station, you'll only get local news or if you just tune into. So one good example of that is NPR, which has a lot of affiliate channels, I guess, or networks or member stations. That's what they call it. (laughs) They will air like local news and talk to local people, but then they'll also have like content that's just on all of their stations. By the way, who listens to radio these days? There's this thing called a podcast <laughs> that I tend to listen to. I, I have stopped listening to radio altogether. Who is listening to radio? That's a good question. And there's also the question that we've asked a lot is who's calling into radio stations? So we know that like Twitter has its own skew and so talk radio probably has its own skew. I don't know about you. I've never called into a talk radio station before, but I think... I don't know the statistics exactly, but people in maybe not so much the urban areas, where in urban areas, you might be like taking public transportation more, not listening to the radio as much. I don't know the exact answer to that, but it did seem like there was a population that was relying on the radio for news in a way that local news channels, TV channels used to be a source of reliable news. If I want to transcribe a high volume of radio data, like let's say I have 400 radio stations, they're playing radio 24 hours a day, seven days a week, I want to transcribe all that audio. Isn't that extremely expensive? And is is that what you have to do in order to study this data? Yeah. So basically what we did was, so we didn't transcribe all of talk radio across America. That'd be a lot of stations, but like I mentioned, we had partnerships with various news outlets across the country. So they would identify like a few radio stations in the area, and then we would go and ingest those. So we had somewhere between 40 and 50, I think, spot instances on AWS running the ingest process. Luckily, that's pretty easy to parallelize because everyone's doing the same process just on different streams. So yeah, it is expensive. I, I don't know the number, but we were not ingesting all stations, but a certain subset. But yeah, 24 hours a day, every day of the week. Got it. So I saw you gave this talk at Data Council, and mm-hmm. that's what made me curious about contacting you and, and discussing this. But you tackled this 
problem of finding duplicate information across different radio stations. So the, there's multiple radio stations across the United States, and you wanted to find duplicates, information that was duplicated I- into different radio streams. Can you explain why that was important? Why was it important to find duplicates? Yeah, so I guess the the most obvious reason, or the reason why we saw this was a problem, was in our search interface. We would type like, I don't know, bicycling, and then we would get the same segment returned as results. Only it would be from different radio stations. So that's not a great user experience to just always see the same segment, and it just happens that it's just rebroadcasted. So that was the initial reason. There were other reasons that we realized were kind of cool later. One was to see sort of this network of which radio stations were airing the same content. And then we had like put together like a visualization that showed these radio stations and without any other data, you could see like the clusters they form. So there's like a very clearly a like NPR cluster and another cluster that is, I forget what they call it, like news slash talk show cluster. And then also as very much outliers, you had like college radio stations that I guess just air whatever they want. So not really any syndicated content. And then what else you could get from that, which we didn't go down, but we thought if we wanted to, so we are a nonprofit, but we thought if we wanted to monetize something would be most of the duplicates we got that weren't like, that were rather, that were shorter were commercials. So you could see like where your commercials were airing, if they were what kind of like other ads they were next to that sort of stuff and then the last thing which we also never really quite went down this road we pivoted quite a a bit since then which i can talk about too but was let's say you have if you can use the syndicated content to figure out these are the parts of different radio stations that are at the national level if you can get rid of those parts and then just listen for the local parts and then use that to do something with like how do people sound so like accents across the country and to see things like to basically make our data more resilient to different accents and different like intonations things like that so that was one thing that we definitely have problems with with our automatic transcription so just to make sure i understand this at a high level at cortico one of the things you're building is a radio search engine and you wanted to detect duplicates for the reasons that you just mentioned. Am I understanding correctly kind of the mission statement of the problem we're about to get into? Yeah, so that was stuff we did about a year or more ago. We do something quite a bit different now. So that talk radio stuff is, I believe it's still running and we can still use the search engine, but we're not really going down that path as much anymore. But what we're doing now is also related to audio data, but it's much more grounded in the local level, I guess. And we call it the Local Voices Network, which is more about facilitating conversations in local communities and through that, finding out what people are concerned about. So I guess it's a different data source than talk radio because, like you mentioned, we there's a lot of questions about talk radio, right? Like who is listening, who is calling in? So we thought... What if we actually just went out into the field, recorded these conversations, and then, because that was basically what we wanted from Talk Radio, to hear like what people locally were interested in. Right. I did look at this other project, the Local Voices Network, the, the more re- recent project that you're working on. Mm-hmm. And if I understand that correctly, that 
involves this wooden device that you put in front of groups of people and these groups of people talk around this wooden device and then it records and transcribes and essentially gives the people who are consuming that information so you can you can have like reporters who could give one of these devices to a community of people and the the reporters would then i guess have access to what these groups of people would talk about am i understanding that correctly yeah yeah that's pretty much it so i guess one thing that i should mention is Cortico works in conjunction with the Media Lab. We have a cooperation agreement between them and the Laboratory for Social Machines. And the Laboratory for Social Machines is very much focused on how humans and machines can interact together in a feedback loop that will help in some sort of way, whether it's like learning with students or community organization, for example. So our thought there was, let's say you have a piece of tech that... so. The wooden thing you mentioned, we call it a hearth or a digital hearth or hearth like H-E-A-R-T-H. And um, it's basically this really well-crafted, just really nice looking piece of wooden cylinder that's pretty flat. And inside of it is a Raspberry Pi and an eight microphone array. So basically what it does is, you could think of it as like a really nice recording slash playback device, a really nice looking recording slash playback device. So there's a few questions about why you would want to use that versus just an iPhone or a tablet, for instance. One of those reasons is we wanted the device to look sort of ceremonial and not to look like a piece of tech that's just like surveying on people, but at the same time to take up substance so people don't forget that they're being recorded. So part of, I forgot to mention one thing that's in the hearth, which is an LED ring. So when it is recording, it glows orange at the bottom. So it's sort of like you're looking at a fire. And then when it's not recording, it's green. But so we want something that would draw the eye, but not feel like an Amazon device, for instance. And then the other thing is the eight microphone array was, and this is sort of something we took from that talk radio work, was on talk radio, we did a lot of what's called speaker diarization So figuring out who is speaking when. So you can say like, okay, right now, like, someone's calling in and it's a caller who's speaking versus right now it's like host one who's speaking and right now it's host two who's speaking. In this case, we thought, well, if we build our own hardware, then if the hearth is sitting in the center of the table, my voice reaches the microphone at a different time than the person across from me's voice reaches the microphone. So we could use the hardware to help us figure out who's talking when. And then from that, we can make like better visualizations for these conversations that are taking place. So yeah, sorry, got a little off track, but the hearth is, we store them mostly in, so in Madison, Wisconsin and New York City, where we launched last year, they're stored in the library systems. So we have trained facilitators, and this is sort of the human interaction part, where they go and check out a hearth from the library, and they take it and then they have gathered people for a conversation and everyone sits around the hearth and then they have this conversation. The facilitator is trained on how to use the hearth. The hearth is actually controlled through a phone wirelessly. And then once the conversation is done, it gets sent to our servers, transcribed and indexed in sort of the same way that we did for talk radio and then put on our site and visualized and that's meant to go to like reporters and other people in the community who can then figure out what people are talking about. So the 
what is the high level goal of these digital hearths? Like what would be an example of of how it would be helpful to a reporter or helpful to a community? Sure. Yeah. So when we piloted in Madison, one example was we had some conversations and we partnered with the local newspaper there, the Cap Times, and they would go through the conversations and find what people were talking about. And we actually built an embed as well to so you could like make a highlight in the conversation, create an embed out of it, and then put that on your news article, for instance. So you could so there was one on like racism in Madison, Wisconsin. And so the article says some stuff about it. And then there's like an embed where it's an actual voice from someone in the local community. So it's sort of, it's almost like when you're watching like local television and you have someone out in the field and they're interviewing somebody. Only in this case, the conversations have already took place and now you can search through it and then say, oh, wow, a lot of people are talking about like this topic. Let me see like what's going on there. So what is the data pipeline for the audio information making it from this digital hearth that a bunch of people are talking around through into a a fully processed and transcribed and indexed set of text data? Sure. Yeah. So we start with the hearth, which, as I mentioned, is a Raspberry Pi. The Raspberry Pi has quite a few processes running on it, but so... One process is basically we have a little web server running on the Pi and it serves up its, so there's a backend server that just holds the recording process. And then there's a front end that just reflects the state of the recording process or the playback process. And the neat thing about that is, so we have a Wi-Fi dongle on the Pi and the Pi already has a Wi-Fi chip on it. So one of the Wi-Fi chips we use as an access point so the phone that we provide with the hearth can connect to the hearth via the access point. And then through that, you can control the hearth via just like a website that's served on the on the Pi. Uh, so through that, the host is able to say like, okay, I am the host of this conversation. So they find their name in a list and then start the conversation, start recording. And then they can actually also play back highlights from different conversations. So we call this cross-pollination, which was something that we decided to do to help um, bridge gaps in communities. So you can hear like what people on like in rural Wisconsin are talking about, for instance, if you're in a Madison conversation. So once all of that is recorded, it gets saved as actually a like custom audio file. So it's not really a WAV file or an MP3 file. It's something that's a result of the eight microphones being interleaved together. So it's actually quite a large file because it's microphone data from all eight microphones and they're just sitting on the Pi for a while. And then also with a metadata file that says like who the host of the conversation was, how long the conversation took, and also if any highlights were cross-pollinated in that conversation. So now you have this audio file, this sort of strange audio file that you need to know how to deinterleave in order to listen to. And then you have this metadata file. So then we have one of the challenges with building the hearth was that it had to work offline. So we imagined it would go out into the field, record a conversation, and then the host would bring it back to the library where it would connect to the Wi-Fi and then upload this um, combination of audio file and metadata file to our servers. So we have just a cron job that checks every 10 minutes if there's something that's ready to be uploaded. 
And then if there is, then it starts uploading it to our servers. There's a few other jobs that run on the Pi. One is a like a check-in process. So it just checks into our servers and says like, hey, here's like my disk usage and other things like that. So it's useful to see like, okay, this heart's been online pretty recently. That's good to know. And then the other process is an update process. So we finagle this thing where we can basically set our server to say, okay, this heart should be on this git hash. And then during the update process, if that git hash doesn't match the git hash that is on the hearth, then it will figure that out and then run Ansible to set its system or check out the repo to that hash and then run Ansible to make its system up to date. So that's everything that happens on the hearth. So let's say the upload was successful. So now it's in our servers. From there, basically what happens is, so we have this thing called audio sync, which takes that file and then it puts it in S3 and then there are, and it has a log so other services can figure out like, hey, a new file has come in or a new conversation has come in. So at that point we have, we create an entry for it in our database that says, okay, here's the file for the conversation. And AudioSync is also responsible for de-interleaving that file into just like a WAV file so that you can just like click on it and it'll play on your computer in a format that people understand. And then there's this sort of separate channel that happens where we have a speech manager that says, okay, new audio is uploaded. Let me transcribe it. And then because we want like better transcriptions, we also send it to a service that uses or where humans can transcribe it for us. So like maybe an hour after the conversation uploads on the site, you'll see the basic automatic transcription. And then maybe a day later, you'll see the human one. So once the human one comes back, we point that we have a place to in our database, we fill that in. And then we have this website that's basically the app that journalists and local politicians would use where they look at it and you can now see the conversation. You see it's transcribed. You see a visualization of the speaker names, who spoke when, and some TFIDF to figure out top terms in the conversation or at least terms that stood out in the conversation. And from there, anyone can go in and make highlights in the conversation. So you can say, oh, like this story somebody told about the police in Madison was really interesting. So you might highlight that. And then people can now go into the conversation and see, oh, like there were like five highlights on this conversation. Let me read about those. And then to loop it all back together, you can also on the website, you can say, I want to, if you're a host or a facilitator, you can say, I want this highlight in my next conversation. So you can say, sync this to the hearths. So that creates a little smaller audio file that's maybe a minute or two long, depending on how long the highlight was. That gets put in S3. And the hearth has this process that looks in that directory in S3. And if it sees a new one, then it syncs that down. And now the host, when the next time they check out the hearth, they can, they'll see that highlight and they can play it during their conversation. So what parts of this stack have you spent most of your time working on? So most of my time is on, initially it was on the hearth and the inner workings there. So a lot of the Raspberry Pi connecting the phone to it making all of that work and all of the sync processes, the update processes. And then after that, mostly the website that sort of shows the conversations and visualizes them and gives us a nice way to like search through them. 
And was there anything particularly difficult about building the software around the hearth that stands out? Yeah, I guess the big thing is that it has to work offline and also be resilient in places with bad internet. I guess libraries have like okay internet, depending on what kind of library system you're in. It's not the best internet and these audio files are huge. So a typical conversation is an hour to an hour and a half and now you have eight channels of audio going into it. So a conversation could be like a 2.5 gig audio file, which even on fast internet would probably take at least 10 to 15 minutes to upload. So now you're on publicly used library Wi-Fi. So making processes resilient to, okay, I'm trying to upload this file, it failed, what do I do now? So basically in that case, it was just keep a log of which files you've uploaded. Once they're uploaded, move them to like an uploaded directory. But if they're still in like the staging directory, keep uploading that. The other thing is updating the hearths. So we frequently make code updates. We recently just pushed out a pretty big update to make the whole app experience better for the hosts. And that, so basically anytime we want to update a hearth, we, now it's a lot more streamlined than it used to be. In the past, we would, when we first launched, we would like SSH, oh, I guess I didn't mention one more thing is that the hearths create an SSH tunnel to our servers whenever they're online. So in the past, we would SSH into a hearth once we saw it was online and then run Ansible on that hearth to get it up to date, or maybe do like a git pull and then run Ansible. One of the first things we decided we had to do was make that process less painful for us, where it was sort of like we would have to see when the hearth was online and then go in and do this manual process. So now, as I mentioned earlier, we just have an endpoint that says, okay, you're hearth number two, you need to be on git hash x. It pulls that down and... Yeah, the Ansible has been very helpful to just say, like, this is the state you need to be in, so get in that state. But yeah, it's pretty unpredictable when hearts will come online. Sometimes sometimes our like partners in the area will like take the hearts home and then have to connect it to like their home Wi-Fi or they don't connect it to the home Wi-Fi or like we forget to connect it. So yeah, just not being able to rely on there always being an internet connection. So just to revisit the usage of these digital hearths and what they actually are for anybody who's lost the thread at this point. These are basically, they look like wooden circles, but it's a functionality that's somewhat similar to an Amazon Alexa or a Google Home in the sense that you're talking into this device and it's recording with high fidelity and being transcribed it's just that the the use case is very different. Can you give a few examples of groups of people or or applications that the digital hearth has been used for? Sure. So recently in in Madison, I believe they had an event regarding the police chief or like the newly elected police chief. I don't know if I have that completely right, but it was this huge event with where five hearths were used and people from the community gathered and talked about basically what they wanted out of like the police system in Madison. So each facilitator, and these are trained facilitators who follow the conversations team of Cortico has put together. The script is meant to promote storytelling, I guess. So not so much having people say like, I believe police should always do this, but to instead say like, this was my experience with the police officer before 
and then have people react to that rather than just political opinions, for instance. So each facilitator is trained to sort of try to get that story out. And they, so each one took a hearth and then they went to some room and then they had this conversation with maybe like five to eight other people. And now that conversation is on our website and we have people in the local Madison, I guess, city government who are going to take a look at those five conversations and see what they can learn from it. And the conversation I was thinking I might have with you was around this presentation that you'd given at Data Council around this radio deduplication, audio engineering work, which was a pretty interesting application. And you spent a lot of time doing data engineering, using Spark, using Kubernetes. Have you done any kind of high volume data engineering with the digital hearth audio data? Or or are you doing something just, you know, kind of fitting it together rather than doing significant data engineering on top of the data that it's collecting? Yeah, I guess the volume of conversations we get right now is nowhere near as much as the talk radio data we were getting. So we set up the system thinking that we might one day get a lot of data, but for now it's definitely a manageable amount. But there was some uh, recently that we were talking of if there is a way to pull in some of that work we had done with the duplicate content in talk radio. So as you mentioned for talk radio, in order to find the duplicate content, we created a Spark cluster out of AWS spot instances and we had them running as a Kubernetes job, which and every time it would come up, it would say, hey, I don't have enough nodes. And then it would get spot instances from AWS, create the Spark cluster and then do that job for however long it would take and then find all the duplicate content. So. Yeah, I don't think there's much in this pipeline at the moment that would require something at that level. We still, we definitely still run all our services on Kubernetes. And for the speaker diarization, part, which is still a research project, as I mentioned earlier, we have uh, humans doing the transcription and the diarization, right now, just so that our website looks reliable and participants feel like their voices are being properly shared. But something we're definitely looking into is how to automate at least the diarization part. So in that case, it's more, and this is something I'm less familiar on, which other people on the team are working on, but we revived some of that work to say, okay, this is how you would start like a GPU cluster in our Kubernetes cluster and using spot instances. So kind of similar. I don't believe that project uses Spark, but mostly because the there's like quite a lot of conversations now and to work through like all eight channels and to also use spatial data requires more processing power. But yeah, another thing that we thought the duplicate content in particular might be useful is I mentioned we had like this cross-pollination idea where highlights are played in different conversations. Right now the hearth marks, it says like, okay, I played this highlight with ID X in this conversation. And then we can visualize on our site, like, hey, this highlight was played in this other conversation here are the reactions to that highlight, for instance. And we thought, okay, what if we didn't want to scale and we didn't have enough hearths, for instance, or a hearth is broken and it can't be used suddenly. In that case, we typically say, okay, record it on a phone and then send us the audio file. So if you could say like, oh, I, if you could use that duplicate content detector to say, oh, from like 
the 10 minute mark to the 15 minute mark, I heard a duplicate content as some other audio file I already have in my system, then you could automatically say like, there was a cross pollination instance here, which the hearth does for us right now. But if we didn't use the hearth, that would be useful. I would like to talk about the data pipeline for processing this high volume of radio data a little bit, because I thought your talk brought up some useful points. And just to revisit that separate application, Mm -hmm. that's the high number of talk radio streams that you transcribed and you built a data pipeline to do audio fingerprinting across the different radio streams and then to eventually detect duplicate fingerprints across different radio streams so that you could essentially detect duplicates across the different radio stations and get an understanding of how these different radio stations might have duplicate content and how they might be clustered together, how they might relate to one another. And that in and of itself is an interesting problem. But the actual data processing, just abstractly, I thought was also a a useful case study. So you set up Spark on Kubernetes and you ran on EC2 instances using the spot instances so that you could have cheaper infrastructure. And when I saw this explanation, I was, I was just wondering, why would you set up your own Spark system? Why not use a managed Spark service? Like, you know, Amazon has, I think, Spark EMR. Why did you deploy your own Spark installation on top of Kubernetes, on top of EC2, rather than using a managed service? Uh, yeah, I guess it was maybe we didn't know better or it was sort of just something we were trying out on the side and not something we were we were fully setting up. So the duplicate content stuff was sort of just like a small research project. We were definitely working more with the media lab at that point. So there were a lot more of these sort of projects. So it was, we also thought it'd be, and I don't, so I don't know too much about the managed Spark clusters, but we thought it would be, if we did it this way, it could be a pretty easy way to continue submitting our jobs the same way that we submit our services for deployment, where you just have like a Kubernetes YAML file, you apply it, and then Kubernetes will figure out everything else for you. So things like how many like EC2 instances you should ask for, how long to keep them running, when to bring them down. So yeah, and it's very possible, because I don't know enough about this, that the, the managed Spark instances would do the same. But I guess in this case, it was just, a, all right, try this out, see how far you can get, and see if it still feels like the other stuff in the pipeline. Totally. And what I found instructive about that example was, it sounded like it was not very difficult to set up Spark on top of Kubernetes, on top of EC2, which is, that's a lot of infrastructure. (laughs) And it's promising that it was that easy, I suppose, because the Kubernetes APIs were just easy enough to work with. Uh, Yeah, and I think if you were to do it now, it it might be even easier. So we were using PySpark, which to me, Python has always felt more like a second-class citizen in Spark world compared to Java. But so at the time when I was doing this, the Spark had released a, an integration with Kubernetes, but it didn't work for PySpark. So, and most of our, actually, yeah, all of our backend stack is Python. So it didn't really make sense to introduce Java to that. But I checked up on it like maybe a year ago and 
it does support PySpark now, so that would make it even easier. And I, I don't quite remember what exactly I had to do to work around that. I think it was, it was because basically what it, what the thing I set up did was it submitted the Kubernetes job. So it was just a Kubernetes cron job, essentially. And it would just, yeah, Kubernetes had great docs on how to use their cluster autoscaler and AWS. We were using EKS on with AWS. So it, there were also some good docs on how to integrate that with the EC2 autoscaler. So that I guess that was the sort of trickier part. So submit the job, make sure the cluster autoscaler gets the nodes you want it to get and the right number, and that once the job is done, that it clears it up. So I think in that sense, I think I wrote like some more bash scripts than I might have had to if I did it now. But yeah, it wasn't like at the point when I wrote this, I'd only been using Kubernetes for like maybe like two months. I had never really used Spark before. But yeah, so it was pretty approachable. Coming back to the projects under Cortico more abstractly, what is the overall vision for the Cortico organization? Is it is it all projects that are related to audio? Or I'd just like to understand what the goals of the organization are more broadly. So the mission is to elevate underheard voices. And the part where audio is sort of interesting is that a lot of, I guess, America at least favors the written word. So I guess that's how we sort of ended up in the audio world where... I guess that's how we ended up in talk radio, at least, where talk radio is a lot harder to ingest, if only because you also have to transcribe it compared to like news articles or Twitter. And we thought that we would be able to get more, at least a different set of voices in the talk radio way. With uh, the local voices network, it was more, okay, with things like Twitter, people are just like sharing their opinions and less so. There are still people who share stories, but not in a way that allows for as like meaningful story reactions if you just have like an in-person conversation. So I guess since the start, we've been experimenting with different ways people can have conversations and to figure out what people's concerns are. So I would say that's the mission and to be able to do it at scale. Yeah. So I guess one of the stories at Cortico is, I, I mentioned the professor Kathy Kramer earlier. She has a book called The Politics of Resentment, where she went and interviewed a lot of people in rural Wisconsin during the Scott Walker election or the recall. And so a very a pretty like local election in Wisconsin. And she went and interviewed a lot of rural people, people living in rural areas in Wisconsin, and found that what they had to say was very different from people in Madison, for instance. So basically a lot of what we thought would work was to figure out how to scale what Kathy was doing using technology. So yeah, some sort of how can you use technology to help elevate voices, but also respect the voices. Have you thought about studying podcast audio data? Uh, yeah, we have. Not so much recently. I think in the talk radio era, we were thinking more about that. But I haven't heard too much. I guess I wasn't really part of that. But do you, do you have any thoughts about that? No, I have no idea. I think it's, it's. I mean, podcasts are so long tail. I mean, the, the thing that would be interesting about it is it is kind of more of a citizen journalism thing rather than this scarcity that happens with talk radio where you have a scarce person on a pulpit. 
and you can only have so many of those kinds of people. Podcasts, you just have total bedlam. You know, whoever wants to broadcast can broadcast. Mm -hmm. So arguably, you could get more of just a total sample of of what people are feeling and thinking on an unfiltered basis Mm -hmm. if you could somehow aggregate and transcribe and study all of the audio that people are saying across all of podcasts. But that seems to me to be way too expensive these days. Like, I think it's just way too expensive to transcribe all podcasts for for anybody except maybe maybe, i don't know maybe like google could do it or something but Mm -hmm. the stuff is just too expensive still right right yeah yeah when you mentioned that podcast like now anyone can do it it's sort of like twitter's data is also great if you can figure out like what you're actually looking for but a lot of it is just like every anyone can tweet so like going through that data so the transcription costs do you know how fast they're dropping or do, have you looked at, have you studied the costs of, of transcription all? To me, this is like a, from what I've looked at, it's like a pretty big bottleneck for doing a lot of interesting work. Because if we could get transcription costs down, there would be a lot of interesting work we could do around audio. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you mean human transcription or automatic transcription? Well, automatic would be fantastic. You know, <laughs> human, is, human is going to always be pretty expensive, I, I believe. But yeah, I, I'd be curious about both. I know recently the transcription service we use has, or for human transcription, has raised its prices. So that's something that definitely affected us. And they raised their prices. Yeah, at least for the converse, the types of conversations that we send in, which are typically very lengthy and have multiple speakers. So I think those are some of their harder cases. In terms of automatic transcription, I believe Google's is the, I guess, the standard and. I don't remember the calculation, but at some point we had thought, how much would it be to use Google to transcribe all of our talk radio stuff? I don't remember the number, but it wasn't something we could do. So even with the, that automatic one, so that's why we sort of rolled our own, which was, and once we were able to train that on the talk radio data set, it was, it seemed to perform better than what Google would have given us. But now we have like this whole other data set. So still trying to figure that out. So you rolled your own transcription system. For talk radio, yeah. What could you take off the shelf for that? I'm pretty sure we used Caldi. I don't know too much about this part. Caldi and then Liam, I think, was another library. I don't know if Liam is used as much anymore. That was for diarization. But yeah, so that one we retrained for talk radio. But for the local voices network conversations, because it's such a it's so much less volume than talk radio. We do use the Google one for the first pass and then the human transcription for the final one. How did you personally get get interested in studying audio data? I guess I don't know if I was interested in audio data so much as storytelling in general. I guess I've just always thought they're like a really great way to connect people. And so that sort of just led me down to find the Media Lab and Cortico and then since I had a tech background, I thought it would make sense to try to do something to to that end. Cool. Well, Allison, it's been really great talking to you. Is there anything else you want to add about Cortico or what else you're working on? No, I think that's it. I think we're pretty excited about, we're expanding into, uh, we started in Boston this year and also starting in Birmingham, Alabama. And it's really interesting to just see, like typically you think, okay, we can scale now. But in all of these cases, I guess I want to say that Cortico started off as a team of, as very much like an engineering team. And then since the launch of Local Voices Network, 
we have this whole other half of the team who are super great and they we call them the oh you sort of think of them as like the conversations team and also the media team and that none of this work would really be possible without that human component of having people out in the field recruiting facilitators and recruiting people for conversations and in that way it's really interesting experience of like tech working along with like these sort of grassroots movements of just having people talk about what they like and don't like about their communities. So yeah, I think that's something I really like about Cortico. Allison, thanks for coming on the show. It's been really great talking to you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.